Hello, I'm Drew Cat, a Choices Director of State Research and Special Projects. Today, I'm in the studio to introduce our listeners to a researcher to watch. I'm here with Grant Clayton, Assistant Professor of Teaching and Learning in the College of Education at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Thanks for joining me today, Grant. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Grant, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little about what attracted you to issues in K-12 education and educational choice? Um, K-12, I had a really Byzantine path into getting into K-12. I started out as a K-12 teacher and then crossed into admin. Um, My mother laughed when I called her and said, I'm going to become a teacher someday. And she said she laughed so hard. Well, I'm going to have to call you back because... Lots of people who became teachers and got in K-12 schools were wildly successful. They got good grades. They got gold star. I had something of a truancy problem and didn't really believe in attending school on a regular basis and attending classes on a selective basis and was not always excited to be there. And so I was amazed. She was amazed and I was amazed that they let me back in. Um, And they continue to be amazed that I'm working in teacher prep and and get people to go question things when I was, was teaching the principal. She's, you know, every time we'd run into a policy that said, you can't do this, you can't do that, her answer was, well, first we have to blow up the school. I don't know if I'm, I'm blowing it up, but I'm certainly passing out matches as I try to encourage my students and now teachers who are my students, we should be questioning the systems you're in and why they function that way. And can you tinker at the margin? Can you blow up the whole thing? And, and certainly, I, you know, school choice fits within that then. And so, yeah, I've, I've kind of done the whole buffet now. I've been teacher, I've been, been administrator, and now I'm on the teacher prep side. So I'm... And full, full word of caution, blowing up not in a physical sense. Sorry. It was, yeah. it was her line, not mine. <laughs> right, right, right. She meant blowing up the system, and she was, she was actually old enough. She was a legit hippie, and so she was very much of the, hey, we should change the whole system and question reality and, and, and all those things, and, and it fit into a lot of how I thought about school is like, well, why does it have to be that way? Even down to why are we measuring success on seat time? And I got in trouble my second year teaching. The district had a, a common final exam. And so I walked in and gave that final exam to all of my students the first day to get baseline data. And then it was the old school Scantron sheets, the green bar ones. And, and I had the answers and walked down and said, oh, look, to the counselor and said, well, these are the kids that made a 95 or above the first day. They clearly don't need this class. You should go change their schedule. I watched some poor school counselor freak out about the fact I was blowing up their master schedule and where were these kids going to go to school and, you know, they, they, you know what classes and, and just the whole allocative mechanism into classes was not based on learning. It was based on seat time and age and I shouldn't go do that. And somewhere in my files, I still have a naughty, naughty letter from that principal that says, don't ever do that again. Uh, and because I, I framed it, I was so proud of it. <laughs> That's awesome. They didn't think so. <laughs> so how, yeah, I'm kind of interested now, like how do you prepare the teachers that you're educating to deal with students like the student that you were during your K-12 time? And I probably get the students I deserve because of that. Uh, in K-12 and even in higher ed, I try to encourage them to question everything. I had, and I would tell students in K-12 even, you know, you should go question why we're here, not just objectives. But if I can't come up with a reason we're here, we probably shouldn't. And I actually had a, a ninth grader because they're not exactly the smoothest group. Give his unvarnished opinion one day and he raised his hand and he said, Mr. Clayton, this sucks. I'm like, yes, that's valuable feedback and we should probably work on how you phrase that. 
but but it was valuable feedback as a teacher. I still want them to go question, ask questions about everything, question the whole system, and, and really yank at those roots. Um, I I work hard with teacher prep, and and when I was working K twelve admin and and in teaching, to help those teachers think about what if you're not wildly successful in school and how does you know who are we reinforcing and who are we not and and really getting them to think about it and ironically enough we had a breakthrough moment this spring because we were talking about people who were not happy in their schools and again they were really having a hard time because they're teachers or future teachers and so you know I'm doing well in class and I've always done well in class and my friends have done well in class that's why I want to be back in school and having a hard time getting them to think about maybe there are people who aren't thrilled to be at school the number of them in the post-Facebook generation who know people who've been online bullied and had horrible things said about them through Facebook and wanting it out to be able to go escape that middle school or that high school and go someplace new. That was the first real light bulb moment of like, hey, maybe maybe fit isn't always there. And, and we had to – I spent a lot of time working with them thinking about, okay, how else – a large part of it, at least secondary school, is convincing kids – to get interested in something they wouldn't normally get interested in. No, I don't think anybody gets up in the morning when went to my AP con class and went, woohoo, cost curves. It just doesn't, that's not a natural reaction. Um, Shakespeare is not usually a natural reaction, but I could, my job as a salesman is like, hey, this is why you should care about cost curves and this is why dead weight loss is sexy. And, and after a while they go, oh no, okay, I kind of like this stuff. I don't want to admit it to my friends at parties and things like that. But that idea of, of getting different ways of approaching that and getting p- different people involved. And I mean, I threw out in class one day that, hey, do you have to collect homework? And I mean, that was the quietest any of my classes had ever been. Like, what do you mean? Like, well, have you ever questioned why we do homework? Well, no. I'm like, well, let's get back to questioning. Why do we have homework? And watching that one just spin out like a cyclone because they'd never made questions about fundamental assumptions about schooling is as basic as homework. And the, the number of kids who sent emails pretty late at night, you know, thanks for giving me the mind bend. Now I'm thinking about this. Like, good. You know, that's why you paid tuition and fees. Mm. I don't know if that helped. No, that that's really great. And I've, we could easily have a tangential mm-hmm. conversation about um, my wife as a teacher and is all into the um, mastery based learning, which is fascinating because it's, it's homework for the sake of learning, not for the sake of the grade that you get on the homework. I don't know if we have the time on the tangent. I do a lot of selling on for the biggest – I'm not always the biggest fan of Bob Marzano's work because it's it's mostly meta-analyses. But he's done a really good job of selling the mastery-based part and that four-point learning scale. Kids are starting to get that, that, you know, can I do this on my own or can I not? And so I, I had a colleague actually stole it from him who did homework quizzes rather than homework. So I assign you to go read this chapter and and you come back in the next day and if you've got a bright and shining smiling face and a, and a ballpoint pen that says, I know it all, let me go quiz you. And if you walk in and you have notes, well, these are the things I don't know and I'm learning those. And and, and I got that from him. And it's like, well, I'm reinforcing a behavior I want if you're taking notes about what you don't know. But more importantly, identifying what you need to know and, and where you are in that process. And you know, hey, I tricked you into doing all these important things I really want by incentivizing it. So speaking of incentives and blowing up the system and trying to find a way to tie this all together, 
Um, let's go with questioning the system and the importance of questioning everything. What have you been questioning lately? Um, what's What are some of the research questions that you're asking, including like past research, what you're potentially hoping to work on in the future, and or what you're currently working on? Uh, my research basically has two tracks that every now and then cross. Uh, I look at high school to college transition, AP, IB, concurrent enrollment, and because states are spending a lot of money, uh, remedial education. So people, we walk in and, and which gets back to questioning the system is we, we're learning a lot about labels. Now I walk in and label you as not college ready and then watch, amazingly enough, you live up to that expectation or down to it. Um, and then obviously a lot of school choice related work on more charters than anything else. Um, and so we've, had a, we've got a new paper that's just coming out where we knew families in Denver were more, immigrant families were more likely to choose charters and they were more likely to go stay in their charter. Then the next obvious question was, well, how are they doing? And, and we found they've pretty well responded to the needs of immigrant communities and English language learners, ENL, whatever abbreviation we like today, seem to be performing better in charter schools than traditional public schools in Denver if for no other reason than they realized that there's a lot of immigrant communities in, in that area and they dropped in. And so um, on the side, I'm pretty excited about teacher labor market and I'm about to start looking at some pay for performance stuff and I'm wildly excited about that. That's really interesting stuff. Yeah, it's fascinating like how in, you know, from someone that studied organizational development in undergrad and nonprofit management in grad school, how there are these, you know, these motivations of, hey, you, you perform well, you're going to get this bonus, which, you know, you, there's, there's something behind being like a very effective or an effective teacher and any potential monetary stipulations to go along with that, but actual pay for performance. And it's a super slippery deal in that no, few things burned me up more when I was a teacher than, hey, I'm way better than the guy next door to me and we make the same money. Or worse, I'm way better than the guy next door to me and he's been here longer and he makes more than I do. And I thought that was going to be one of the things that made me the angriest as a teacher. And amazingly enough, as an administrator, it made me more angry because now I can't walk up and really incentivize you and say, you're really good at this. Can I get you know give you more money to teach more students or work with a harder to work with group and really help leverage those things we know. Cause we know there's a lot of variation in teacher quality. I was a completely hamstrung by a salary schedule. So they paid what it paid and we're, uh, and it's not like we've got good perks to go offer in education. I mean, Hey, better parking windows office. I mean, the, the status symbols aren't good in th terms of things I can offer. I've, I've once heard a teacher say, you know, they could keep me here another decade if they'd just give me a window. I told my students if I came in, the window class was canceled. So they kept waiting for me to rappel down in that school and sneak in the window. <laughs> uh, let, let's, let's tie it back and focus back on um, what I'm kind of interested about. So what do you like the most about researching charter schools? And what are some of the challenges associated with researching charter schools? I got interested in school, ch backed into school choice with charter work. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I got started in some of the schools I started teaching in were some of the least desirable schools in, in the state and the country. And then 
finished my career in the other end of it, of the rainbow, and some of the most desirable, highly competitive, wealthy schools, and was deeply troubled by this idea of what determines where you go to school and school quality a lot is a zip code, and that really bothered me. Uh, and I was in a state and a district that didn't support intra-district choice to the point where I guess I should have been, my mother told me I was predestined for school choice because I tried to go to a different high school and she had to appeal to the school board to get permission to do that. And I tell my students that now that, and like, well, don't, why didn't you just fill out the paperwork? Like, well, back then we didn't have that paperwork. Uh, so that interest in school choice got me then. I was working in grad school with people who did school choice and, and looking at charters as a mechanism to, to get into a better school or not maybe segregate, segregate quite so much on wealth because that was always one of the things that concerned me is, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty smart guy, but I have to work hard to come up with a system that, that better replicates segregation on wealth than assigning school districts by zip code. And so that one kind of interested me a great deal. Um, and charters looked like a tool, and especially an available tool where I was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's one of the things that intrigues me about charters. Um, the frustrating part is trying to capture the gap between communication with lay audiences. People want to think of charters writ large, and there's a lot of internal variation in charters, just like there's a lot of internal variation in, in everything if we get, get nuanced. And so they want to try and make – charters are good, charters are bad. And like, schools are good, schools are bad. They're all that way, and and the fact that what data is available or not. I mean, in the in the post testing apocalypse, we're all interested in in math and English tests because that's what's available to us. And I'm trying desperately to move that conversation to some other outcomes that we might care about. I mean, civic participation should would be nice. Move out of your parents' basement, get a job, pay taxes, uh, all those sorts of things. I'm you know, obviously interested in post-secondary going, so those were those two lines really cross, and I'm interested in looking at that. So because so many of us rely on institutionally collected data, then the question turns into, are we collecting the right things? And I've had a graduate professor who always yelled at me about institutionally collected data, and she said, no, look at that. Are you collecting the right stuff, or do you just have a lot of data? And trying to get into other variables we might care and how we can go get those and what's collected and and then trying to make cross-state comparisons because every state seems to be collecting it slightly differently, which makes it just hard enough to compare across that you would... The conspiracy theorist in you says they're doing this on purpose because it shouldn't be quite this difficult, but it is. And so I, that one kind of always it bangs my head against charter. The ability to not be able to well-fold public... Uh, try that again, private schools back into the conversation and say, okay, what are they doing? How does this fit into it? I mean, because you'll watch families that go through that in, in a lot of different ways and we isolate charter effects or we isolate traditional public effects and saying, well, maybe it's a more complex ecosystem than we'd like to make it. Yeah, just like... No two people are the same. No stu- No two students are the same. No two teachers are the same. Why are two schools going to be the same? Right. And I, I see that trying to help people with complexity. I know I got a call from a reporter, which always makes me a little bit nervous about, hey, turn turn your life's work uh, into a, a short soundbite. And she was trying to get into charter quality. And like, you know, she was trying to get into it. It was a good or is it bad? I'm like, it's both. You know? mm-hmm. what, I, I finally 
I finally helped her out with, I said, you don't go to Hope and Deep Toe and buy really expensive and potentially fatal tools without a purpose. I said, don't wildly choose schools without a purpose. Why is it you're doing that? I worked with someone who selected a core knowledge middle school for their kid, having sent their kid K-5 to a Montessori school and wondering why it didn't work out. And I went, you should think about more than the fact you have choices. What are those choices within those choices? Because it went clank on their kid's life. Yeah. Yeah, that would talk about um, transition effects. Yeah. I'm sure that would be quite a big one. Yeah, and there's a case study in there somewhere, but it's not going to be me. No. So what, what, what kind of questions do you like to ask and work on by yourself versus um, how often do you like to collaborate with other people in your department or within your university or across universities or even outside of the university realm? Uh, as much as possible, I actually look to collaborate with other people because what I found is the teaching part of my job is highly social. The research part of my job, if I don't watch it, is it feeds the introvert of me just a little too much. And then I don't play nicely with others because I don't talk to people enough and I'm just talking to the computer. And so I like to work with other, other people. And I like the fact that you get different points of view on it and have co-authors who push back and say, maybe this isn't so good. And so maybe that's back to my return to being that difficult student and having those difficult students is, you know, the co-author says, no, I don't, I don't quite see it that way. Or let's, you know, all of us is, who do statistical work, you know, you get an answer, we're really happy. And then we spend the next three days trying to make how robust is that answer, which is really Bulgarian for can we make our answer go away that we just worked to get. Hmm. Um, so it is. It, yeah. I mean, that's truly what a robustness test is. is I never thought of that I worked way. hard to get an answer, and now I'm going to try and kill that answer off. I mean, it's, it's demented, and it's true core. Uh, so, yeah, I like to look to other partners and as much as possible bridge that gap on communication because then you can start to get both a, a diversity of ideas and different outlets for how you're going to communicate results because I'm always – you look at my favorite conferences and – who attends, and it's, and then a lot of practitioner conferences and who attends, and the overlap isn't always good. And sometimes I, th I think if we've got other outlets for, for information, um, certainly Dick Carpenter and I've collaborated. Um, Marcus and I, Marcus Winters, who's now in Boston. Um, there's that Josh, Dunn is a big school choice advocate as well on the poli sci side. Uh, he and I've yet to go really build a project, but. I'll run ideas past him, especially as he thinks that he, you can tell training, hey, he came from this poli-sci world and thinks slightly different about things and, and asks questions I wouldn't have thought of or sometimes even cared about, I'll be really honest. Um, and so it's good to see those, those di get yelled at on the front end, especially if there's things that are going to go out to reviewers. Um, I, it also brings new ideas to the table. Hey, outside interests are walked up and say, we're really curious about this, whatever it might be. Um, so it's not just me driving it. And that, that's always been important to me is what else is, are other people curious about? And so I, yeah, I like to bring in other collaborators. I also feel like we, we can get the work out a little bit faster, especially academic work works on a geologic timetable. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why computer science has now gone to conference papers of the metric for for success, because by the time something goes through a journal and published, it's already outdated. 
And so I watch really important research that takes 12 months, 18 months, if it's a slow journal to get out. Well, if I'm doing this sole author, great, that's cool. It's just that much slower versus if we can work on it and move the whole industry. Uh, something that I guess we can circle back. We're now getting enough research on on charters and a little bit better research on vouchers. We can start to scale up and say, our unit of analysis is now the meta-analysis and really starting to look writ large and make some bigger policy statements. And that's an exciting time. We've now we've gotten past single case studies and we've gotten past one case and we're we're really starting to be able to roll that up and you can watch the momentum and that's that's exciting. Uh, I'm really looking forward to some where we're gonna get to the meta analysis level. The the unit of study is no longer one case. Yeah. Yeah, the kind of stuff that medicine has been doing for decades. Yeah. The difference is the upside of K twelve is at least we have compulsory attendance, so we get more data. The downside is is the ethics are a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, though I still question to today the the ethics associated with mandatory attendance laws and and school assignment variables and how how ethical they they really are as as, as we know they're not quite destiny but they start to feel like them. Yeah, it's also interesting the change in culture with each generation around a school. It's like what the what the view is of going to school and the purpose of going to school and how that has changed. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful enough that I had parents that hammered into my head that, hey, this is what you're going to do to be successful in life, which, you know, in reality, I could have gone to a trade school, which is then still education and become wildly successful in what I did. But it's, it's, it's just in a world of MOOCs and social media, it's... What's the purpose of the brick-and-mortar building? And that should be getting back to questioning the system writ large. Is The brick-and-mortar building, just like the brick-and-mortar restaurant or the brick-and-mortar competitor to Amazon today, needs to go differentiate themselves and say, this is what we do well and do those things well. Um, I know I, I pointed out to my students one day, I said, you know, college is just paying a bunch of old guys to decide which books you're going to go read, right? And they said, not really. I'm like, yeah, look at really on, the, on the, the granular level what you're doing. That's where the, yeah, the MOOCs are out there, but choosing the right MOOC and which MOOC you need when and, and those sorts of tools and, and be, being able to go blend in and bring in some more from the outside, I think, is the wave of the future. I always found it fascinating when I had a professor that one of the assigned readings, they were an author or a co-author. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was always a great read. It was just like, oh, there's a little self-interest to play here, too. Oh, absolutely. Though, in their defense, most of the really good teachers I've seen both in K-12 and higher ed detest textbooks. And sometimes I see that as reflexive. I didn't have a book that addressed things the way I wanted or addressed the questions I needed. And actually went out and did that because there was a K-12 teacher with me who wrote one of the top-selling biology textbooks in America because he was tired of taking some pushing the outer limits on cop on on copyright and using portions of various textbooks and said, so, well I can write my own better and actually did to the point his welcome mat says this is the house that books built. Which, oh, I, awesome. which I loved. Yeah. Uh, just trying to think what a house made of books would look like. Okay. So moving Suburbia, on. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> Ah, uh, so 
Yeah, what's what's the main, I think, question that you wish you could leave uh, the audience of this podcast with? Why school? Man, we really need, especially in the opening doom of the 21st century, getting back to you talking about this, the brick and mortar school, and then watch that plurality of answers. It's about fit in that idea and how we're going to go really think about success and the fact that some people really want an educated citizenship. Some people really want to go be able to get a job and go get paid. Some people want to look at post-secondary. Some people really care about an ecclesiastical education and, and really getting that reinforced because that's an important thing to their family. As you watch families throughout why school and then watch the multitude of answers, that's why we have really important impassioned discussions about school fit and school choice because people are trying to define different metrics for success and say, I want that for my kid and my family, which doesn't necessarily look like yours, 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 or the next guys, and be able to make that fit. So, I mean, start that conversation. Get people thinking writ large, why school? Hmm. That's great. Um, Very fascinating. And and I think that's a nice, challenging question. So any last words, uh, Grant? Any forthcoming research you'd like to plug other than what we've already discussed? Um, I'll plug things on the opposite side. We've got a series of papers looking at concurrent enrollment, uh, one of which will be a descriptive look of how charters are looking at concurrent enrollment. Uh, But long term, how students who took concurrent enrollment performed in college relative to each other and relative to how they uh, they did uh, how each relative to each other and relative to to their their cohort mates I guess for lack of a better word as I stumble through that um, I'm looking forward to doing some more some more work on school choice finance in the future um, and I think that's that's probably enough to keep me busy for a little while at least. Yeah, it's amazing how we have all these research ideas. And then it's like, well, how much time is each one going to take to really flesh out? My wife makes fun of that, actually, because I've got the whiteboard cue. And there's some things that never percolate up because there's something more pressing or more interesting or better data. There's still interesting questions to me. They're still circling out. They're just never – they're never on deck. They're, they're always somewhere in the queue. They just don't quite get there and – conversations we had today probably indicated that some of them may never rise to the top. Because it's also in the world of research, especially around K-12 education, it's not necessarily what you're interested in. It's where are the grant dollars? Where are the philanthropic dollars? And where where is there actually data? Yes, most importantly. What data exists and what data can you get? Because what I found out is there's that chasm between what exists and what you can get. Mm-hmm. That, I guess I would bring that one up on, on a forthcoming paper. Ka Matt Chingos looked at opt-out, so families who didn't participate in state-required testing in New York City in a cross-sectional. Uh, my co-authors and I looked at Colorado on longitudinal data, and not shockingly, families that are willing to engage in school choice weren't super excited about engaging in in state-mandated testing again, um, which gets back to fit and those sorts of metrics. But I 
I think there's going to be an interesting case study there in the fact that they're grossly out of compliance as a state in certain districts with federal law about 95% participation and what that means if the feds blink and back down and states are really going through the motions on testing again and and how that fits into that larger school landscape of data we get or data we don't get and how good it is. And then also achievement versus attainment. Yeah. And are they trade-offs and why do we keep making them that way? Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Grant. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And to our listeners, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on platforms like SoundCloud and iTunes and others for more of our coverage of new school choice research, education reform policy chats, and more. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back soon with more EdChoice Chats. Thank <laughs> you.